2: Even if you've never been on a motorcycle, you know Harley Davidson. You know who rides them. Harleys are for macho cowboys and rebels, riding down the highway in a group or the center of a lane, leather jackets, thick black boots. It's a specific version of what it means to be American. We believe in freedom. And no one knows this better than Harley Davidson. Their ads say it loud and proud. We believe the machine you sit on can tell the world exactly where you stand. We don't care what everyone else believes. Amen. The Harley-Davidson brand has sold motorcycles with this image for more than a century. Bikers literally wear the Harley-Davidson brand on their backs. Some have it tattooed on their bodies. But having one of the strongest brands in the world hasn't stopped Harley-Davidson from hitting some roadblocks lately. From true American icon to, you're going to pay for this. President Trump backing
3: a boycott of Harley-Davidson. Build those beautiful motorcycles in the USA, please, okay? Don't get cute with us. Don't get cute.
2: From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobcock. McDonald's Big Mac. Harley-Davidson has spent more than a century becoming the brand it is today. Big, loud, American. But now, Harley's running out of American customers if it wants to keep selling motorcycles it needs to make some of its bikes outside the USA and become a little less American in the process. How will one CEO keep both the company and brand alive without letting one... Get in the way of the other. Stay with us. I'm here with Matt DeBoard, Business Insider's transportation writer, writing about all things cars, planes, and motorcycles. And you are here in our studio wearing a Harley-Davidson shirt, complete with skull. I'm flying the colors. Are you a Harley guy? I I like
1: the fashion. I like the Harley fashion. This is the most recent Harley uh, t-shirt that I acquired. I have three Harley shirts at this point.
2: So it's like part of a regular rotation? I don't gear up for the office that much. You know? Except for today. Except for today. like, What is this brand identity? What does it say about you to wear a Harley-Davidson shirt?
1: Well, it's the coolest brand in motorcycling, and it symbolizes everything about motorcycles around the world. So if people think motorcycle, and they think America, and they put those two words together in their brain, immediately Harley-Davidson pops to mind. There are other brands that are famous, but no brand has been as successful at allying themselves with this whole idea of Americanness and individuality and the open road and freedom
2: as Harley has. It's been that way since Harley-Davidson started in 1903. Its origin story is just so American. It's almost cliché. Well, there were these two guys, William Harley and Arthur Davidson,
1: and I mean, they're sort of like classic entrepreneurs. Um, young guys in the Midwest in, in Wisconsin. they got together in a, in a tiny wooden shed, just a shed, you know, not even a garage. But just, just a
2: like, you know, were garages even a thing in 1903? I mean, you had stables, but like, was the idea of a garage even invented? I, yet? I don't, I don't
1: think so, and I don't even think this structure rose to the level of a stable. You know, I mean, I think if, if you had tried to use this as a stable, you might have put your worst mule in this stable, you know, <laughs> or your or your saddest uh, horse <laughs> or some other animal like a couple of goats or
2: something like that. You know, it wasn't even it wasn't even at that at that level. All right. So Harley-Davidson 1903 was as impressive as a place to store two goats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm only going by the pictures I've seen. You know? yeah. I don't believe that the that the you know, iconic
1: original structure exists anymore. But anyway, William Harley had experience in the bicycle-making business. And uh, Davidson was the money guy. So he, he arranged for a couple hundred dollars to be loaned to the two of them so they could start the company. And their objective was just to you know, work up a prototype – of essentially a bicycle with a motor on it. The idea being that you didn't have to pedal anymore. You had these new, newfangled things called, you know, engines, and you could put them on something and they could make, you know, vehicles move. It wasn't too long before Harley and Davidson had, you know, began to establish a, a little market for themselves and, and their motorized bicycles, you know, funky looking as they were, became popular.
2: So, so they had this very American entrepreneurial origin story <laughs> – uh, like a couple of entrepreneurs doing something in a shed, uh, but when do they actually become kind of synonymous with America? I think that would have would have been during the First World War. In the wind up to World War One, motorcycle manufacturers like Harley Davidson started selling bikes to the U.S. military. It was a significant business opportunity for the company. The motorcycle industry was still in its infancy. It was selling bikes to motorcycle racers, but struggling to convert average Americans into riders. So during the war, Harley sent almost half the motorcycles it produced to the front lines in Europe. And by the time the war was over, the company had contributed almost 20,000 motorcycles to the Army's efforts. That was the beginnings of Harley as a
1: quintessentially American brand. When the bikes are you know, associated with the, the war effort and you start to see American soldiers riding around on them, it becomes it was, like patriotism in a way. Well, in a way, and I mean, it, 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 I think that the, the story is that there was this uh, army corporal rode a Harley-Davidson into Germany in World War One, the end of World War One. So, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, hail the conquering hero, I guess, on his Harley-Davidson.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty good marketing. <laughs> right. Harley-Davidson was gradually developing a reputation for being a patriotic and classically American brand. But that didn't immediately translate into more motorcycle riders because in 1929, the stock market crashed and motorcycle sales went down with it. By the time the American economy had started to show signs of life, the number of American motorcycle manufacturers had dropped from six to just two, a company called Indian and Harley-Davidson. How does Harley-Davidson survive the Great Depression?
1: Uh, Harley focuses on becoming sort of the Harley that we know and love today. So flashy bikes, dramatic designs, innovating with engine technology that create the V-Twin, the famous V-Twin motor at this time. That sort of screaming eagle, eagle soaring thing shows up at this time. So a lot of the stuff that we associate with the brand, uh, the iconography we associate with the brand, the technology we associate with the brand, the overall vibe, you know, the the, the Harley mojo dates to
2: this period. When World War II broke out, Harley-Davidson repeated their role as patriotic American motorcycle supplier. But this time, it was on a much bigger scale. The company sent tens of thousands of bikes overseas over the course of the war. Many more soldiers served their country on a Harley-Davidson.
1: Well, so if you think about World War II versus World War I, World War II is a war of mobility. Being able to move around quickly becomes extremely important. So motorcycles are useful for that kind of thing. You can put a soldier on a motorcycle and they can zip around from one part of the battle to the other. They can go out and scout enemy positions, all that kind of stuff.
2: And then, you know, I guess this is another case of what, 60,000 soldiers who are getting acquainted with Harley-Davidson's?
1: Exactly. So you have young American men for the most part who have maybe coveted a motorcycle or they've seen these bikes around So they're riding around on motorcycles for the first time and they they really get a taste of what kind of crazy fun they can have with these confounded contraptions, you know, that they might have seen roaring around uh, the roads when they were – and you're not talking about old dudes either here. You're talking about really young men. They're the live-to-ride and ride-to-live people who who emerge in the post-war period. The story is always that you have these soldiers who, you know, faced life and death every single day. In the largest war humanity's ever fought, c- colossally destructive, a mass- massive, industrialized violence on a you know c- completely massive scale. They come back and they're told, "Get rid of your uniform, put your suit on, and become a good soldier for American business or American culture." And there were some folks who were just not down with that. And they bought Harley's. And they bought Harley's. They bought Harleys. This is where we really start to get the brand establishing its association with freedom, an open road lifestyle,
2: you know, a screw the man, all that kind of stuff. By the 1960s, the Harley-Davidson brand identity was so strong that even people who didn't work for Harley-Davidson could co-opt it to make a point.
1: You know, that's when we have motorcycles in the movies, that's when we have Brando, that's when we have Easy Rider.
3: But they see a free individual. It's going to scare him. No, well, don't make them run and scared.
1: That's when we have the creation of this mythology that Harley is so profitably capitalized
2: on. And so are there a bunch of baby boomers kind of growing up with this?
1: Yeah, it's, that's the thing. It's around them in a way that it wasn't really for the... I mean, the original writers after the war, they didn't necessarily have this crazy romance... By the time the, the baby boomers come along, the, this has already been established. You grew up with the idea that motorcycles are cool, that Harley-Davidson's are the coolest motorcycles. It, it isn't just getting on a motorcycle and starting it up and riding around. It's a whole nother set of you
2: know values. By the 1980s, the company was using slogans like, the eagle soars alone. And in 1983, it founded the largest factory-sponsored motorcycle club in the world, the Harley-Davidson Owners Group. H-O-G, Hog, and of course the informal
1: name for the bikes. Everybody, what do you
2: you ride? I ride a Hog. I ride a Hog. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, right. By 2000, Hog's membership topped half a million riders. And of course, whether you owned a motorcycle or not, you could buy Harley-Davidson swag like leather jackets, gloves, wallets, and boots. So who is riding Harley-Davidson's today?
1: Well in many respects it's the same people who are riding them in the 80s. Do you mean literally the same people? Yeah, literally the same people. It's just that they're old now, older. They're aging. <laughs> you know, they're not, they haven't been told by their physician that they can no longer ride their motorcycle, but uh, it's only a matter of time before, you know, life takes its course and they have to ride
2: off to that great biker bar in the sky
1: and Harley's not going to have that that customer anymore.
2: If Harley Davidson wants to keep selling motorcycles 10, 15, 20 years down the road, it needs to find someone new to sell to. The guy responsible for finding those people is Matt Levitich, Harley Davidson's latest CEO. I think Matt Levitich has the toughest job in the transportation business. I mean, he really has a tough job. Matt Levitich has been working at Harley Davidson since the mid 90s. Beautiful day to ride here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on Motorcycle Monday. In this video, which the company posted on Facebook a few months ago, he's deciding which one of his Harleys to ride to work. And I just let the bike that speaks to me loudest, you know, call my name. You know, while very casually talking about his long-term business plan. Let's uh, pick this up a little bit later and uh, share some more information, more insights about what's great about Harley-Davidson and the future that we have in front of us. Levitich likes to ride motorcycles, but don't let the leather jacket fool you. He's also an experienced engineer. I believe he got his MBA at
1: Northwestern. You know, so He's the model of a modern global industrial executive. He is not somebody who borrowed 500 bucks so he could slap a
2: motor on a bicycle in a, in a shed and in 1903. <laughs> it also sounds like he's comfortable in the boardroom and also on the open road. Yes, he wears the helmet
1: as well as the suit.
2: And now, Levitich has a classic business school case study on his hands. He has to figure out how to sell Harley Davidsons to customers who, so far, have expressed no interest in riding big, lumbering motorcycles, who don't see themselves as outlaws, riders who might not even be Americans. And Levitich has to do all that without changing everything Harley Davidson stands for what the brand has spent the last century becoming. How will he do it? That's in a minute. We're back. Harley-Davidson spent the 20th century becoming Harley-Davidson. Big, badass, patriotic. Two generations of Americans bought into that brand image. But now Matt Levitich, the company's CEO, has two really big problems. Harley-Davidson's core customers are getting old and no one's stepping up to replace them. If you want to look at the numbers,
1: the market's been declining since probably the '90s through the 2000s. Uh, it just, it, because of the dynamics of the financial crisis, it sort of fell off a cliff at that point, and the you know the entire business has been struggling back since then.
2: There are a couple of reasons for this. First, Harley Davidsons are expensive. You don't buy a Harley so you can ride it to drop your kids off at school or commute to work. It's a toy. Plus, in general, younger generations just aren't as interested in the Harley brand as their parents were. The whole stick-it-to-the-man hard rock energy of the 70s has died down. So has the post-war patriotism that sold Harleys in the 1950s. Motorcycle riders these days are choosing smaller, sportier bikes that go fast, are easier to control, and cost less. And those bikes are more environmentally friendly, too. So in the early 2000s, when motorcycle manufacturers were starting to become aware of this problem, Harley-Davidson hedged its bets. So instead
1: of just selling great big cruiser bikes uh, to those folks that we've been talking about, you know, these these boomers who just love that Harley thing, love the loud bike, they love the flashy bike, uh, they started thinking, oh, well, we've got, you know, pressure from the Japanese on the sport bike side, the young kids are buying a lot of these sport bikes so they had you know a sport bike brand they had kind of a you know italianish stylish different a different thing you know now not necessarily undermining the harley brand in the process but trying to you know open up their ridership to different kinds
2: of people but before harley davidson had a chance to fully execute that plan it was hit with a bigger short-term problem the 2008 financial crisis
1: and because these motorcycles are toys and not a necessity their sales just completely tank, and their core business is profoundly threatened. And so it had to make some tough choices, and uh, Keith Waddle, who was the CEO at the time, said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go back to basics. We're going to make Harley Harley. We're not going to have these distractions. We're going to focus on making sure that our core business is solid and that we survive as Harley Davidson. So we don't want to lose Harley Davidson. Trevor Burrus Do you want to lose the brand? Don't want to lose the brand. So it was a refocusing period on the
2: core brand, and it worked. Harley made it through the recession, but as the company was dealing with its short-term survival plan, its long-term problems were getting more pressing. And it's not like Matt Levitage, Harley's CEO, is going to wake up tomorrow morning without a customer, but the subset of Harley riders in America is just going to keep getting smaller and smaller.
1: So he hasn't, he hasn't got forever, but he could also say, hey, I'm CEO of Harley-Davidson, revenue's pretty good. Profit, profitability is pretty good. I still have you know, a whole lot of customers out there who are willing to spend anywhere from $6,000 to $45,000 on a motorcycle. Uh, I could just ride this thing you know, for a long time and not worry about it a whole lot. And, and, but then it's a problem for the next guy. You know, the next CEO of the company will have to f- you know deal with the much more dire situation in the future. And, and that person could also say, hey – no problem. I can ride this thing too. Matt rode it. I'll ride Matt gave up. You know, he and I, He just sort of said, you know, forget it. I'm, you know, it's too 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 challenging. I'm going to ride it as well. And then the next guy could ride it and the next guy could ride it. And eventually you'll still have a great brand. I mean people still be walking around wearing their Harley Davidson t-shirts like I am today. And they will understand what Harley Davidson
2: meant as a brand, but there won't be any business under it anymore. To keep that from happening, Levitich is looking for new markets where he can sell Harley-Davidson's. And like a lot of manufacturing CEOs, he has his eyes on Asia and South America. You
1: know, so Harley-Davidson already has manufacturing facilities in Brazil. They have a factory in India. So they're in markets where, you know, they think they can sell bikes in the future. Developed markets are kind of flat and tapped out at this juncture as far as sales growth is concerned. But there's
2: a bit of a gold rush mentality around Asia. But Harley's running into the same problem in Asia as it is in the U.S. Its signature product, the loud lumbering cruiser, just isn't popular. Harley's big bikes are harder to maneuver in dense traffic. They use more gas. They're just not practical for commuting outside of Route 66 and isolated desert roads. But those bikes are what make Harley Harley. They are the brand.
1: The brand is a liability because it means such a clear thing to so many people so it means freedom it means rebellion it means the open road it means all those wonderful harley things uh, but it also means big motorcycles so if you're not in the market for a big motorcycle or if you think you know that's just like i don't I, I don't want i'm not sure i want to ride motorcycles and even if i did i don't want to ride big motorcycles uh, that's that, that's that's the problem I mean, this is everybody is dealing with this ducati's dealing with this yamaha's dealing with this suzuki's dealing
2: with it Um, But those brands don't mean as much. They they can become something else. They can become something else. Despite all this, Harley's actually in a pretty decent position to carry out the big business changes it needs to make. Sure, the company's in a market that's declining but it's at least leading that market. You know, even if they're not selling half the bikes that are
1: big to everybody in the US, they're still selling something like 40% of them. And they make a ton of money, you know, they make they make hundreds of millions of dollars in profit every year. So they have ample resources to be able to, you know, try to crack open new markets and maybe To a certain extent, experiment with smaller, somewhat smaller motorcycles in the U.S. market to bring younger riders in without undermining the brand in the process.
2: So for years, Matt Levitich has been making little moves, like opening those factories in India and Brazil, designing some new types of motorcycles, moving some production abroad to cut costs. But to be clear, Levitich still wants to make those big classic Harleys that made the company famous, and he'll keep building those bikes in America. They are never not going to make those motorcycles.
1: Uh, So yes, he's selling – he's happy to make those bikes and sell them to the core ridership. You know, might be on their fifth or sixth soft tail at this point. They probably have more than one Harley in the garage. They might make those bikes in foreign markets. But the the place where they sell those bikes is America and they're going to keep making those bikes in America and Americans are going to build them. Proud Americans are going to proudly build those proud Harley-Davidson motorcycles which are enormous and make a big proud loud noise when they
2: go down the road. But even if Harley-Davidson is going to keep making American-style bikes in those American factories, some people think moving any production abroad feels un-Harley, un-American. This is what Levitich has to balance, keeping his core audience happy while also slowly steering the business toward the future.
1: Okay, I've got a metaphor. It's like Matt Levitich has a house. He has a really beautiful house. It's a spectacular, beautiful house that has been built up uh, over the decades, and it looks glorious from the outside, and you have no doubt that it's a it's a great house. You drive up past the house on the street, and you think, "Boy, that is a heck of a house! Look at that house! I wish I could have one of those houses." Uh, And then the problem, though, is that you get inside the house and you find out that, well, you know, the staircase is maybe a little – it got some problems, a little creaky. You might need to – get, and the plumbing isn't – you know, it's not the most – you know, greatest plumbing. And the electrical could be an issue and and maybe the roof leaks a little bit, you know. But it still looks great from the outside. It's a gorgeous – shiny, beautiful house. So he's kind of, he's kind of got to go behind the scenes of the brand a little bit. So if the house is the brand, you have these business issues that are his pressing concern at this juncture.
2: For years, Matt Levitich quietly renovated his house, sneaking new pipes and parquet wood flooring in through the back door. But then in 2018, someone took notice in a big way.
1: Oh, well, he's gotten himself into a fracas with the president of the United States is what's
2: happened. That's in a minute.
0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
2: We're back. When Donald Trump took office, Harley Davidson was on his good side. He even invited Matt Levitich and other Harley executives to visit the White House. Trump had a little show and tell where he rolled a bunch of Harleys out onto the,
1: you know, White House driveway slash lawn. And there's pictures. Yeah, you know, so. so Made
3: in America.
1: Uh, Harley is obviously a great American company. True American icon, one of the greats. With Americans, you know, working in American factories, building something that Americans who, you know, in many ways are fans of the president, like to buy.
3: A group of people, what a fantastic job you did. And thank you for all the votes you gave me in Wisconsin.
2: Trump said all of this, even though Harley-Davidson had been moving production overseas for years. It didn't seem to matter.
3: So, thank you, Harley Davidson, for building things in
2: America. So, you know, Trump made them a, a poster child of what was good about America. So, when does all that become a problem? In March of 2018.
3: Today, I'm defending America's national security by placing tariffs on foreign imports of steel and aluminum.
1: Trump decided that what he wanted to do was protect U.S. steel and aluminum manufacturers. So, you know, uh, obviously car makers and motorcycle makers are buying steel and aluminum from all over the place. So if you slap a tariff on imported steel and aluminum, the idea is that uh, it's going to become too expensive for them to buy. So they'll buy from American manufacturers instead. By
3: contrast, we will not place any new tax on product made in the USA. So there's no tax if a product is made in the USA. You don't want to pay tax? Bring your plant to the USA. There's no tax.
1: But what happened was the American manufacturers just, you know, once the the competition was eliminated, they just raised their
2: prices. In other words, the cost for Harley-Davidson to make its motorcycles in the United States had suddenly gone up. And then it got even more expensive.
0: And the EU is moving ahead with tariffs on some $7.5 billion
1: worth of American goods.
2: Including motorcycles.
1: If you're gonna get into a trade war, you're not gonna retaliate against products that nobody's never heard of. You retaliate against products that are symbolic. You find the most symbolic products for that country. You just say, what is America what is America's what's symbolic of America? Whiskey. Right, whiskey. We have a whiskey tariff, right? So I think they slapped a tariff on on whiskey, and then and then oh, let's see, what's a what's a really big, powerful, a bunch of brand everybody around the world associates with America, America, America. Harley Davidson,
2: Harley Davidson. They're trying to sell their motorcycles here. Boom, twenty five percent tariff on those guys, you know. So. And so again, the brand is a liability in this environment. It is. I mean, it's, because it, it means America. It's
1: a weird thing, isn't it?
2: In order to manufacture Harley-Davidson's in America and then sell them abroad in new markets the way he'd planned, Matt Levitich would have to spend a lot more money. First on raw materials to build the bikes, and then on taxes to import them into other countries. All of that would add up to about $2,200 extra dollars per bike. So Levitich did what CEOs do. He made a business decision.
0: Harley-Davidson announcing today it's shifting some of its production overseas to avoid the retaliatory tariffs just implemented by the EU.
2: Is because of Trump's tariffs and the EU's retaliation, Levitich was forced to move even more production abroad than he'd planned. And this time, it didn't slide under the radar.
3: Harley-Davidson, please build those beautiful motorcycles in the USA, please, okay? Don't get cute with us. Don't get cute.
1: Uh, And then all of a sudden, Trump is tweeting uh, negative things about Harley moving production to Thailand and, and, you know, laying a trade war on top
2: of them.
0: President Trump came out in support of a boycott against the company.
2: President Trump tweeted yesterday, quote, many Harley-Davidson owners plan to boycott the company if
0: manufacturing moves overseas.
2: Great exclamation point.
0: Most other companies are coming in our direction, including Harley competitors.
2: A really bad move. Exclamation
3: point. Build them in the USA. Your customers won't be happy if you don't, I'll tell you
2: that. Trump supporters followed his lead. They started posting online, telling other riders to boycott Harley Davidson. Some bikers called for the company to move all its production back to the United States. Like this is Chris Cox on Fox Business. He's the founder of Bikers for Trump.
1: If Harley Davidson wants to turn his back on the biker community and to not show the respect that they deserve with the veterans in the blue collar, we certainly will move on.
2: This wasn't the first time a subset of Harley riders had called for Levitage to build all the company's bikes in the U.S.
1: But Trump takes that minor problem and because he's the president of the United States, he amplifies it. You know, it's like having a whole bunch of Marshall amplifier stacks behind him for every single thing that he says. And if he zeroes in on Harley Davidson – then what was a kind of manageable minor problem potentially, maybe not even a problem really. I mean I don't think Matt Levitich cares who – if he's got people who are Trump enthusiasts in his, in his customer uh, core, so what? You know, it's, they, their money is green. You know, they can ride a motorcycle, too. I don't think he cares about that. It's when it becomes something that really uh, becomes amplified to such a degree that it, it undermines his ability to execute on the global business that it's a problem. You know, and, and Matt Levitich is not going to come out and say, you know, Trump is really messing up my life. I mean, we just don't need this. He's not going to you know, do something in impolitic like that. He's going to be diplomatic about it. But, it, you know, this is just throwing a wrench into the works that they did not anticipate was going to be flying in there. And, you know, it becomes a meeting that he has to have with his executive team and with the CFO of the company, to try to figure out how they're going to manage through these
2: unanticipated costs. Harley-Davidson's stock price took a hit after Trump's tweet storm. And there wasn't a lot Matt Levitich could do about that. So he can't lecture his
1: customer about how the business is supposed to work. And he also can't do what they're asking for because it doesn't make any business sense.
2: So now it looks like Matt Levitich just has to ride out the Trump presidency you know trump's not going to be president forever he has to have a vision
1: that goes beyond you know the next 2 years and then if trump's reelected the next 4 years when you're in the manufacturing economy like this you have to make decisions and invest money based on long time frames you can't think oh well you know i'll just pivot around and do something different because trump is tweeting about me again you you can't think that way and then you know it's it's the the markets and the evolution of the global business will tell us whether his game plan is successful. So if they are able to introduce different motorcycles into developed markets and be able to sell them to younger riders
2: and diversify their their, uh, customers, then that'll be a success. So how does does Matt Levitage do his plan without Trump noticing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Trump's going to
1: notice. It's just a question of whether he does anything about noticing. You know, is Trump gonna keep quiet now that he's tumbled Harley Davidson and Matt Levitic in the tank for as he's thrown them into the barrel, he's given he's knocked them around a little bit, he can move on to knocking somebody else around. I think Matt has to do what he's he's you know been trained to do by his experience as a global executive. You know, he has to He's got a strategy. He's put his strategy in place. He's communicated that to you know the Harley Davidson board of directors, to the investment community, and to customers. They everybody knows what's coming. And now he just has to say, "This is our strategy. We're not going to be inflexible about it. If we have to make adjustments, we will, like course corrections along the way." But he has to just you know conclude that he's committed. Trump can continue to attack them for that, but the, I think that. You yeah. I would say I like to say the horse has left the barn, but it's the wrong metaphor for this conversation. The shed, yeah. The bike has left the shed. Yeah. Matt Deboard, thanks so much. My pleasure, indeed. Dan Bobkov, live to ride, ride to live.
2: So we were off the past few weeks. We're back now for season three, and we really enjoyed hearing from so many of you by email and in our Facebook group while we were off. One listener named Michael told us about his dad, who is both a World War II veteran and a rabbi, and who actually bought two Volkswagens for his family after the war. Hannah, an artist in California, sent us a drawing of Big Jane Austen. You should check that out online. And lots of you sent us emails about how different brands have played roles in your lives. Sometimes they end up in a segment we like to call product misplacement. This one comes to us from Henderson, Nevada.
0: Hi, my name is Sophia, and and that's my son, James.
2: And the brand that's had an effect on her life? Old
0: school, 90s era Honda Civics. And Accords.
2: In fact, one of those Hondas may or may not be the reason she's married to her husband today.
0: The problem with these old cars is they were really easy to steal. I met my husband in college. We both went to school in Spokane, Washington. Um, I'm from Washington State, but he's actually from Hawaii. When I met him, he had a Honda Civic, a super old one. I think it was green, if I remember correctly. And it was so old, like it was old even for the time. We were in college in 2009 when we started dating, and this car was like 20 years old at the time. He would come pick me up and take me places like the rock climbing gym so we could go hang out downtown since he had a car and I didn't. And this car was so beat up. It didn't have a radio just, like, wires coming out of the dash with blinking lights. The radio had been stolen out of it multiple times, and he just stopped replacing it. And he would put his old, like, a early iPhone in the middle of the, like, console so that we could listen to music over the rattling of the car. There was no lock in the world, no low jack, that could stop somebody from breaking into and, you know, like, stealing, making the car start on these old, old Hondas. And I remember when he picked me up for our first date, and we went out to dinner... And then we wanted to get a movie. And apparently literally every video store in the entire city of Spokane had closed down that weekend, um, which was pretty funny. Uh, We were, so that was like our memory of our first date is driving up and down in the super beat up car with his iPhone giving us like super crappy directions to all these blockbusters and like Hollywood videos that were closed down. Three months after we started dating, he had to leave campus to go back for Christmas break and he left his car on campus. I guess he had somebody who was like watching the cars, like dude, your car's not in front of the house and lo and behold it got stolen what a surprise and he was like in california at the time and he couldn't come back and he eventually was able to come back and he started looking for his car and he filed a police report but first they found his license plates on a different car then some guy found the car and they had like a piece of paper with his number in it and called him and said that the car had been found on his property that was like way far outside of town. So it was really sketchy, but he decided to like bring his friend and see if he could go get the car. Well, they finally get out to where the car is and the car has been stolen from the place that it was stolen from, like doubly stolen just in the same day because these cars, literally like any Honda key, you could just like jiggle with it and it would open it up. And then eventually they found like the totally stripped version of it, no tires, anything, towed it back to him. And then he sold it for scrap metal. And then he had no car. So there goes my uh, my big plan of dating the guy on campus with a car. I made him vow that he would never buy another Honda again because it was so awful having the car stolen all the time. And then so that was the thing. I was like, you're never, ever going to get a Honda again. Well, the irony now, and this is what he likes to remind me of, it is now 2019 and we own not one but two Hondas, um, because they really are the best. And we do have new cars that hopefully aren't as easy to steal. And we wisened up and started getting comprehensive insurance so that if someone does steal our car, we get paid for it. That's my story. I love the show. I hope you guys are having a great day. James, can you say bye-bye? are you waving? Say bye-bye. Mm-hmm. He's whispering it. <laughs> Bye.
2: That's Sophia Hergenrader. If you have a product misplacement story, send us an email at householdname at insider.com or let us know in our Facebook group. Just search for Household Name Podcast. We're sharing more listener submissions as well as some bonus details about stories we've already covered on the podcast in our brand new newsletter. To subscribe, visit businessinsider.com slash household dash name or click the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Sarah Wyman with Amy Padula, Jennifer Siegel, and me. Sound design and original music by Casey Holford and John Delore. Our editor is Gianna Palmer. The executive producers are Chris Bannon, Jenny Radalit, and me. Household Name is a production of Insider Audio.
0: Stitcher.